want to welcome each of you to Hill Country Bible Church and those joining us online or in any of our locations. Uh, we're grateful to be together, and I have some very exciting news today. Y'all ready for some exciting news? Okay. Well, after 10 months of prayer and seeking God on this next real adventure in faith for Hill Country Bible Church, the time has finally come. And next Sunday, September 17th, I will be handing the leadership baton for Hill Country Bible Church to our new lead pastor, Tim Cool. Now, I just can't help myself from saying, how cool is that? I got to tell you, I am so filled with joy and so filled with gratitude to God that he would bring us such a godly, gifted leader who loves Jesus, loves his family, Wendy and his kids, and actually loves you, the people of Hill Country Bible Church. And so next week, I'm going to encourage every one of you to prioritize being here in person at each of our locations, be here in person, and I want to encourage you to invite your friends, your neighbors, your classmates, your family, your enemies, everybody that you know to come and attend worship with you, to meet and hear from our new lead pastor, and I want all of you to be here to support him as he takes the pulpit and begins this journey with us together, and I'm so excited about that. And I would also say, uh, some of you in second hour may consider just coming to first hour next week. Uh, we've got a full house at all of our locations, second hour. We've got a few more empty seats, first hour. So just encourage you to do that. But I want to see all your faces here next week. It is a historic moment in the life of our church, and we're so excited about that. Now, we've been in a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, which many people quote, but very few people live and Jesus intended to give us kingdom values, to actually elevate the values that we have in our culture that we find every day as we're looking at our devices and swiping through here and looking on here where we're being told what to wear, what to think, what to eat, uh, what kind of house we should live in, where we should go to college, um, what our values should be, how we should identify who we are as people. It, it, this thing is filled with information that's constantly shaping us, shaping our children to a lesser view of humanity than what you really are, what God created you to be. And we're seeing it in an unraveling world all around us. And so we're in the Sermon on the Mount, which is reminding us that God has a plan for a kingdom life that's so much better than anything this culture will ever give you. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 or your smartphone or whatever you have. Get, go to a Bible app, pull up Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 13. Now, as we're doing that, I, I, let me just ask a question that I struggle with from time to time, and I wonder if you do too. Do you ever have this feeling? Maybe when 
things settle down or, you know, maybe after a victory or a defeat or whatever takes place in your life where you just actually wonder, am I of any value? Like, is my life here on earth really making any kind of a difference? Do I value to God? Does he value me? And, like, if I just disappeared tomorrow, outside of the people that are close to me, would I have made any dent in the world at all? Would anybody ever miss me? Like, if you feel that way, which I think all of us do from time to time, if you feel that way, I just want to tell you today, we've got great news And here's the great news, that God values you because he's given you value. He created you in his image, and then he sent his son Jesus into the world to give his life so that you could be forgiven, have God's spirit with you, and live forever with God starting today all the way into eternity And he's placed you on this planet with a strategic ability to be an agent of transformation. That's why today, our our big idea from the Sermon on the Mount is this. As we live out our faith together, we bring value to people and glory to God. As we live out our faith together, we bring value to people and glory to God. Now, some of you may be a bit skeptical about that and say, man, the world is so big. There's so much chaos, so many problems. People are so recalcitrant. Like, how could that be true? Like, how could I ever be a difference maker? How can I ever, like, make a dent in this world? And why would God care about me? Well, here's the really amazing thing. God has said, you are and you can. And I want you to see it in the Sermon on the Mount here. So in chapter 13, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 13, we read it's the statement. It says, you are the salt of the earth. Then in verse 14, we read the statement, you are the light of the world. Now, before we dive into this, I just want to pause for a minute and make a couple observations. The first observation is this. These are identity statements. He's not saying you could be the salt of the earth. He's saying you are. He's not saying that if you try really hard and work at it for years and years and you get enlightened and you do better and better, that someday you may attain to being the salt of the earth or the light of the world. He's actually saying right now, because you're in a relationship with Jesus, you are. Now, who he's talking to here, we find in chapter 5, verse 1, is the crowd is gathered around him, but his disciples gathered up close to him, and he's talking directly to his disciples, and he's saying to them, because of your association with me, you have a new identity, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, let me also make the observation that he also is talking about something that is huge. This is a huge deal. Notice what he says, you are the salt of the earth. The word earth there refers to the earth and all of its inhabitants. In other words, what he's saying is you are the salt of the whole world, whole earth, all the people on the planet. You have an influence, your life has an influence on everyone. And then when he says you're the light of the world, the word world, cosmos, means the way things work. 
So you are the light that shines light into every activity or every idea or everything that takes place on the planet. Literally, he's saying, you have the identity of salt to all the people and light to all the way things happen. So if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to say declaratively to them, I am salt. Okay, turn to the person on the other side, say, I am light. Okay, now that we've established what Jesus said, what in the world does he mean by salt? You are the salt of the earth. Well, here's what Jesus is saying. As salt, we are hope for a decaying world. As salt, we are hope for a decaying world. Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Now, in our world, Salt is the thing that we put on our food to make it taste good, uh, unless you're at that age or stage of life where they've told you don't eat any more salt. Um, And that's all we think about when we think about salt. But in the ancient world, salt was as good as gold. It was a mineral that everybody needed and everybody used from kings down to the poorest of the poor. In fact, it was so valuable that oftentimes Roman soldiers were literally paid their wages in salt because it was a commodity that everybody needed. They could always exchange it for whatever they needed. Now, why was it so important? It's because salt at its core is a preserving agent. And in the Middle Eastern culture where the world got hot, if you had an animal that you turned into meat and you didn't have a way to refrigerate it, which nobody had, what did you use? Put salt around it, coated in salt, and all of a sudden you had the ability to preserve things for long periods of time, which kept people from starvation and also kept people from food poisoning by eating rotten food. It was so important. In addition to that, it makes food taste better. Think about that. A good God who gave a preservative for food that actually makes it taste good. In contrast to the stuff that our stores put on our food now to keep it looking green and beautiful and it tastes bad. Interesting. Of course, none of you ever eat anything out of the garden or from your farm, so you don't really know what things taste like anyway. So put the salt on it, right? What Jesus is saying is that in the same way that salt preserves, the world around us is in decay. And you play a critical role to show the world in decay a better way in order to help the world return to sanity. Now, here's the deal. When people decide that they're going to walk away from their creator, they're no longer going to listen to their God or honor God, and they begin to create some kind of other God based on a desire or a passion or a feeling, or worse yet, they decide that they are God, which is what everybody in our culture is telling you to believe. Hey, follow your heart. You'll find truth in your authentic self, which is literally telling you that your feelings actually 
are the reality of the world, which is crazy. But everybody today is believing this. And if I am my own authority and all truth resides in my feelings, what does that do? That empowers me to do all kinds of things, like be selfish, be prideful, make everything about me, and when that becomes true, I can justify just about anything. So we see greed, so we see lust, so we see envy, so we see hatred, so we see actual physical violence that's becoming more and more common in our world as we move further and further and further and further away from looking to a loving God and his righteous way of living our lives. And when that happens, society begins to deteriorate. Now, any Tolkien fans here? Anybody like Tolkien? Uh, J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, for those of you who don't know the author's name, Lord of the Rings, um, he, a devout, committed Christian who embedded a Christian worldview into most of his writings. And there's a character in the Lord of the Rings that personifies this deterioration. His name is Gollum. Now, for those of you who paid attention to the stories, you know that Gollum, at one point in time, was a hobbit named Smeagol, but he got a hold of the ring of power and he fell in love with the ring of power and over time, when that's all that he cared about, his health deteriorated, his looks deteriorated, his passions for everything else deteriorated and somewhere deep inside Smeagol was still there and he could remember what friendship and love were but they were such a vague thing and life was all about holding on to his precious. And when you make success, you're precious. When you make self-gratification, you're precious. When you make you getting your way, controlling the others in the world around you, you're precious. When you make anything that isn't the self-sacrificial life that God called us to live, you make that your precious, you begin to deteriorate. And when you do, it affects your family, your friends, your coworkers, and they affect you too, and the world begins to rot. Just look at what's happening in all of the countries that make up the part of the world where Christianity brought all kinds of incredible values, the value of the individual the worth of every person that did not exist in the history of the world before Jesus. And all the good that's come out of all those values of justice and righteousness and love and compassion, all of those things that came from Jesus and from Jesus' followers. And what's happening today, as more and more people in our society are saying no to Jesus' values and to following God, and everybody's now experimenting with their own things, what's happening and we see it all around us. You walk through our inner cities, and what do you see? You see crime. You see despair. You see drug abuse. You see homelessness. You see people that are living in ways that most of us would have never thought that that would ever happen. Where's that coming from? Where's that coming from, that decay? But you go into our suburbs, 
And you knock on the bedroom door of our teenagers and you listen to the heart cry of depression and anxiety and fear where suicide rates are rising. Where does that come from? That comes from a society that's deteriorating because we no longer follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That's what's taking place. And it's going to continue. Now, listen very carefully. The solution is not the armchair moralist who simply sits back and rages against the decay. How do you know that you're one of those? Just ask yourself the question, when I get together with my people, what do we talk about? Do we talk about how bad everything is? You know what happens when you do that? You become bitter. But Jesus has called you to be salty. Nobody likes bitter. But everybody that tastes salt gets thirsty for something better. And so here what we're called, here's what we're called to do. We're actually called to live a life where we take what Jesus has done for us and we do that for the people around us. For example, Jesus has forgiven us of our sins and so we turn to the people around us and we offer forgiveness to them. No Christian should ever participate in cancel culture. Why? Because we always believe in forgiveness and restoration and help. Why? Because that's what we got from Jesus. Because Jesus loved us. We love people, including our enemies. You're going to hear about that later in the Sermon on the Mount. We actually love people, and we give love to the world because Jesus has given us hope. We don't walk around as doomsday people with long faces, but we live in hope, and we tell people about the hope of what Jesus has done for us and what our future looks like, and we share good news. We also live as moral people that can be trusted. We live as people who keep our word. We live as people who follow through on our vows and keep our commitments. We live as people who are unswervingly committed to the morality and the values that come from Jesus. And you know what happens when we do that? The people around us can feel it. Like, oh my goodness, what is this? Who are these people? And suddenly they have an option in a world that's decaying. Now, there is a warning given here in the passage that you can actually do something with your salt that will actually take you out of the game. He says in verse 13, you were the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, when Jesus says this, everybody in the crowd's kind of like, wait a minute, I have to think about this for a second, Jesus, because we know that salt doesn't become unsalty. Like, salt is salt. It doesn't become unsalty. 
And we know that the only way you can make unsalty salt salty again would be to give more salt to it. So, like, what are you saying, Jesus? But here's what everybody in Jesus' day knew. That if you had a little bit of salt and it was diluted with something else, then it would not do what it needed to do. The properties of salt would be so diluted that they're ineffective. And at that point in time, you might as well take your whole batch and just throw it out in the street because it's no good anymore. What's Jesus saying? He's saying this, that you and I can adopt the beliefs and the behaviors of this world and so incorporate them into our lives that people no longer see the distinctive relationship of us with Jesus. We just look like everybody else. And when you have all the beliefs and all the behaviors, your habits, your goals, your priorities for yourself, your children are just like the rest of the world, people go... Yeah, she goes to church, but she's just like me. Yeah, he goes to church, but like, I don't see anything different there. There's nothing unique. And in that moment, you've moved from an agent of transformation to sidewalk dust. Like, that's your impact in the world. You're just sidewalk dust, Jesus says, to be trampled by people in the street, you have no impact. That's why it's so important that you take a hard look at your life and wrestle with, like, am I just doing life like everybody else? Students, I'm just fitting in with the priorities of everybody else, or can people see and hear and taste Jesus when they encounter me and the way I live and the way I think and what I prioritize? Now, I'm going to tell you guys something that's really alarming to me. So, post-pandemic, 26 million American Christians dropped out of church and have said in all the surveying, they're not planning to come back. 26 million Americans. Now, I would say 26 million Americans in the United States left Jesus. Some of you might say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Like, whoa, that's going too far, isn't it? Like, left Jesus? Yeah, left Jesus because the church is the bride of Christ. The church is what Jesus gave his life for. Like, Jesus never intended for individual Christians to go off and live their Christianity by themselves. He always had the church coming together, being unified, learning, growing, worshiping with one voice, not when it's convenient, but because it's important, and in doing that, that we together would organize and go out and reach the community with the good news, the love of Jesus. That was Jesus' plan. In fact, the writer of Hebrews actually says, do not give up meeting together, even if you're being persecuted. Like knowing that going to be with the rest of the believers could cost you your life, go anyway. And our approach typically is like, it could cost me my Sunday morning. It could cost me a little time. So 26 million Americans just stop following Jesus. So how did that happen? 
So I've been giving a lot of thought to this because I think about things like this. So I've been giving a lot of thought to this. Let me give you a quick history lesson. And as I give you this history lesson, I know that there are roots of these movements that go deeper and longer and are philosophical and theological. So I'm just going to give you an overview of popular American experience. So after World War I, with the devastation that happened on the planet, you talk about humanity deteriorating devastation on the planet. After World War I, a large number of denominations decided that the problem is we've been focusing on personal salvation, helping an individual come to faith in Jesus Christ, and what we really need to do is save society. And so they shifted the focus away from helping people know Jesus, and they shifted it over to what can we do to make sure we create utopia by pouring all our effort and energy to fixing things in the world. Now, for every reaction, there's always an equal and opposite reaction. So the pendulum swung. And a group that some of you may be familiar with identified themselves as fundamentalist reaction to that. Now, what they said was, is we're going to believe the Bible, we're going to hold to the truths of the Bible, we are going to make sure that doctrine is proclaimed, and we're going to go after personal salvation in a profound way, and what we're going to do is, if you're not part of our group, you're not really a Christian, I grew up in that. How that manifested itself in my life was a pastor yelling and pounding the pulpit and telling me that if my hair touched my ears, then I wasn't really a follower of Jesus Christ. Seven stanzas to an altar call to tell everybody to come down here and change their habits because anything that looked or smelled or even tasted like the world was evil, and we need to repent. And that's what the reaction was. I grew, anybody else grew up in that? Man, I grew up in that, okay? With every reaction or overreaction, there's another reaction. So the evangelical movement sprung up in reaction to that, and the evangelical movement said, why do we have to be so mad? Like, we love Scripture. We want to see people come to Christ. So why don't we relax some of these legalistic ideas and make church more accessible to people? I mean, can you imagine my pastor looking at me, speaking in jeans? Like, what in the world is wrong with you? People going to a church where a pastor would wear jeans in the pulpit. Obviously, that's compromise. Like, that was, the, that was the fundamentalist. Now we're over here in the evangelical, but here's the problem with evangelicalism. When we said, we want to make the gospel more accessible and acceptable to people in the world, make it easier for them to come to Christ, a lot of us heard... Well, we're going to make our lives acceptable to the world. And Christians began to adopt all the behaviors and attitudes of the secular world around them, and that is now set in to the point where when I say something like, God commands us to gather together, we think, 
Whoa, that's legalism. When actually, God's word is full of good commands that move us in the right direction. When 26 million people got out of the habit of showing up occasionally in church, there was no reason to go back because as far as they were concerned, their life is what this culture is committed to. And I don't think most of them would say that they reject Jesus. They just reject Christianity when they do that. Now, as I describe kind of some of the history of the movements in the church, some of you may say, like, I'm not a Christian. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I just want to say to you this. I want you to know that there are so many people that call themselves Christians that are not living like Jesus. Don't judge Jesus on the basis of our mess-ups because Jesus is so wonderful. Jesus left the portals of heaven to come to this earth to walk among us so that you could see how much he loves you. And Jesus gave his life, literally sacrificed himself to bring you into a relationship with the Holy God so that you can forever be in God's family. And he wants to transform you to make you salt and light to make a difference in the world. And he will do that if you put your trust in him. We have the opportunity and the responsibility who are followers of Jesus to make that clear from how we live and what we say. And so Jesus goes on to say, you are the light of the world. And that's an easier one. We know what light is. Jesus says "As light. We are hope for a dark world. The world around us gets dark when Jesus and his ways do not get lived out in front of people, and we're called to shine the light on that. And so Jesus says this. He says, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now think about in the ancient times, there's no headlights, there's no flashlight, there's no phone light. And for a traveler traveling to a city through the Judean wilderness and throughout the hills and with the cliffs on each side and trails that were difficult and the sun goes down, you don't want to be caught outside alone, crossing and coming up that crest and looking up on the hill, and there on the hill is a city with the torches burning brightly. What an amazing sight. Guidance to truth and goodness. And that's what Jesus is saying we are because the world around us is dark. In fact, Jesus makes that very clear in John chapter 3. Here's what he says. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. In other words, we're talking about deeds here. And what he's saying is, is that when you start to live a selfish, self-fulfilled, self-promoted life, and somebody shows you something different, that's threatening to you. Because that challenges the very God that you have inside of you, which is yourself. And so when the light of the gospel starts coming people's way, many retreat back, pull away, because they want to remain in the world that they're in and live the way they want to live. And Jesus says, everyone who does evil hates the light 
and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That I will see myself for who I am and people will see me for who I am and I don't want that to happen. That's why social media is such a brilliant diversion because there you can create a you and show people only what you want them to see. And so there's a fake you running around out there and if you're not careful, you can start thinking that's the real you when it's really not. Now watch what Jesus says next. He says this, he says, but whoever lives by the truth, now that's key, whoever lives by the truth, we're not talking about knowing the truth. Here at Hill Country Bible Church, we're not simply interested in informational, like you know more, we're actually talking about incarnational, you live it. It comes in and becomes who you are. That's what Jesus intended. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. In other words, as you start living by the truth, what you're going to begin to see is you're starting to live out the, the blessing of God and what God wants for your life, and you're going to see how it changes your marriage, how it changes your children, how it changes your workspace, how it's doing good things, because this is what God intended. And so they come into the light, and watch this phrase. This is so profound. He says, so that it may be seen plainly what he has done has been done through God. In other words, there's a direct connection between living the truth in your daily life, Monday through Saturday. You live it out at school, at the office, in your home. And what happens is your life is going to take on more and more of the characteristics of light that God has already called you to be. And when that happens, it's going to have an impact because people are going to see supernatural things that are happening in you and through you. They'll see a different way. The darkness will pull back and they're going to see the light and they will give God credit for that. Now, I want you to see how he says that in the same passage. Look at verse 16. He says in the same way, let your light shine before men, like let your light shine out into the world that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So the way you live your good deeds will point people directly to God, and then God has the ability then to transform their lives as well. Now, there's a phrase in here that I need to make sure you understand. Oftentimes, we take the word good deeds and we confine that to an activity and stick it into our schedule and go, <laughs> well, I got my good deed done for the day or for the week or for the month. Oh, man, I did a lot today. That's for the year. That's my credit for the year. That's not what this phrase means, okay? It's not what it means. It actually means the deeds there are the ways you live your life. In other words, they will see the good in all that you do and say. So, for those of you who thought, oh, no, like I went down to Community First Village and I, like I did some things last week and I was thinking I'm off the hook for the rest of the month. Whoa, we're not talking about that. Even though you should go down to Community First Village and invest in that Christian ministry that's changing the face of homelessness in Austin. Do that. 
but make your life a way of living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you see, if people see you and hear you, they're going to see God. One of my daughters spent quite a bit of time in Great Britain. And when she was doing one of her degrees over there, uh, she was in a degree program where there were a number of Muslims that were part of the program. And so she built great friendships, very deep friendships with all of these people as she was living her life with them as a student, getting her graduate degree and, and with them in their lives. And in the course of that, she had one friend one day who was really upset, and she asked her what she was upset about, and her friend confided in her that she was worried about the eternal destiny of her brother because as a Muslim, he was considering Christianity. And she told my daughter, if he converts to Christianity, Allah is going to send him to hell, and I don't want him to go to hell. And my daughter said to her, Hmm, that's interesting. She said, I'm a Christian, and you've never had this conversation with me. I thought you cared about me. If you're worried about Christians going to hell because of your understanding of Islam, then why aren't you trying to help me become a Muslim? Here's what her friend said. Her friend said, Kate, I don't know what to say to you. You're the weirdest person I've ever met. <laughs> she said, you talk to God all the time, and he talks back to you all the time. She's like, I don't know about religion, but I know that you are connected to God because I don't know anybody who talks to God, much less who God talks back to. And what had Kate been doing? She just shared with her classmates things that she was praying about because that's her. That's her, right? If you pray... And your friends and coworkers and classmates don't know it. You are hiding Jesus from them. You're hiding Jesus from them. You're hiding your light. In fact, he says in verse 15, he says in verse 15, he says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Why would you do that? He says. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Light is meant to be displayed. You are the light of the world. If you don't talk about your relationship with God, if you never share how God answers your prayer, if you never explain what your motivation is for why you live the way you live and your values, if you don't tell people, here's why I love my, my wife, this is why I love her, because this is the union that God created. It's holy and sacred, and it means the world. If nobody in your world knows that, here's what you've done. You've said no for them. You've said no for them. You've said, I don't think they're interested, so I'm not going to give them a chance to see the light. I'm going to lock this mouth down and this life down, and I'm putting a bowl over something that God created. Throughout the history of the world, 
The followers of Jesus have literally changed the world. There's so much of what you experience today in life that you just take for granted that did not exist at the time of the Roman Empire or in any of the ancient world. And after Jesus brought his teachings and his truth and his salvation to his followers, they literally went out and changed the world. They brought the idea that all people are created equal by their creator and have worth, which led to the abolition of slavery and democratic governments that all came from the teachings of Jesus and moved us out into the world. In addition to that, they cared about the sick. They cared about the poor. They cared about education. They cared about science. They cared about the arts. And so what did they do? They built hospitals and orphanages. Public education came through the church of Jesus Christ. They built laboratories. They built all of the infrastructure of the things that help people in our world today. They did all of that, not to mention the billions of people on the planet who through an encounter with Jesus have had their lives radically changed, not just for now, but for all of eternity. That's what came from Jesus and it continues today. It continues in Austin. In 2009, I and a group of pastors got together with the city leaders and said, what are the problems that the church could solve in the city? And they said, well, our biggest problems are education. And so we pulled together all the school superintendents from all the districts that make up the greater Austin area, and we sat down and asked them, what are the problems? And they gave us a bunch of problems, but one of them was third grade literacy. In the Texas system of education, from kindergarten to third grade, you learn to read, and starting in fourth grade, you read to learn. And so if you can't read in fourth grade, you can't learn. And the dropout rate is off the charts. And so we started Education Connection to solve that systemic problem in our city. The pandemic set us back. But we're still this year going to be reading to over one-third of the at-risk kids in greater Austin through 11 school districts. And like for an hour a week, you can be part of that. Those kinds of things are happening even today. In fact, it led one of the former mayors of Austin. I actually said this at one of our gatherings. He said when I became mayor, oh, and by the way, I don't agree with much of his politics, but can you get over that for just a second? Okay. Got you over that? Okay. Um, he, he, said, he said to a whole group of us, he said, when I, when I came into office, I used to think that government changed people's lives for the better and the church was here to help. Since I've been mayor of Austin, I know now that the church is actually changing people's lives and the government is here to help the church. It's a pretty strong statement for someone who is not a Christian, has no background or interest in Christianity. There's one more thing that I gotta leave you with, okay? The passage says you are and the you there is plural. Now, let me interpret that for you guys who are not grammar geeks. In Texas, we would say, y'all. Or, if you're a true Texan, born and raised here, you would know that the correct phrase is 
all y'all. And when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he didn't say, hey, Peter, you're the salt of the earth. Hey, John, you're the light of the world. He said, guys, all of you together are salt and light. You have been commissioned to work together to change the world. You know what's so phenomenal about that? Is every one of you, your impact is exponentially advanced as the person sitting next to you makes a similar impact. And so as each of us together, this is our mission statement, each of us together, saturating greater Austin with the love of Jesus Christ, if every believer in the city of Austin was living out their faith as salt and light, this city would change. You wouldn't even have to go pull a lever on a voting booth. It would change. That's what Jesus said we're capable of when we follow him and live out his calling. Now, I want everybody to grab their cell phones. Pull, get them in your hand. Don't check them. Just get them in your hand, okay? I know you're, you're, whatever inside of you has been jittering for, you know, 35 minutes or so. Like, i got to check this thing. Okay, everybody got them in, in your hand? Um, I, I want you to see the power of we, okay? So as we darken the lights in the room, and as these lights get darker, think about a world where people don't know any better than just following what everybody in the culture does, don't know that life can be any different. And what happens when somebody raises a light? What happens when all of us raise our lights? I want you to just look around for a minute. This is what God looks down from heaven and sees. I have strategically placed each of you and I'm putting you together to be the salt and light to bring the good news of Jesus to our city and the world. May you own it and live it. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, I just thank you that you have entrusted such a noble calling in such ordinary people like me and like everyone that's part of this amazing church. Father, we know that you see more for us. Not more busyness, not more fatigue, not more anxiety, not more striving but you see more peace, you see more impact, you see more hope, more love, more joy, more forgiveness as we become more like you. May we leave an impact on this city that will resonate in the generations to come and throughout all of eternity. As you've called us, you've empowered us, and as you've empowered us, you've deployed us. And may that be true for all of us for all times. In Jesus' name, amen.